all of James, I'm also content. I always have to tell myself that. Okay. So let's look at Hebrews. The author is unknown. Um, I think probably, almost certainly, it's not Paul. If you look at the way the Bible, the New Testament is organized, whenever they organized it, um, they arranged it by author. And then you'll notice that Hebrews, which is a very significant, lengthy letter, I remember as a child, when I was uh, uh, looking for books in the Bible where you turn the pages, I always thought Hebrew was placed randomly and oddly um, after Philemon, but that's because Philemon is the last of the, of the Pauline letters. And then Hebrews is placed there, I think probably because maybe it could be Paul, but we're not sure, it's, it's unauthored. But it's, it's after Hebrews is then James and, and, and Peter and so forth. But I think it's almost certainly not Paul for this reason. Uh, let me read you Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. The writer says, How shall we escape if we, if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, okay, notice the order, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So, what the writer is saying is that um, the gospel is declared by Jesus and then it's um, attested to or it's then communicated to the church through the apostles, right? The, eye, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Um, that's what uh, the writer means when he says it was attested to us by those who heard. So he doesn't count himself among the apostles. And we know that Paul... Um, if you read Galatians, for example, Paul makes strong emphasis. I didn't receive the gospel from anybody. I received it directly from the Lord. He's an apostle. He has the authority of an apostle. So this just doesn't sound like Paul to me. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more. It's interesting. In verse 4, he says it was, um, God also bore witness by signs, wonders, and various miracles. So that lets you know the purpose of miracles. And that's the next series I want to do after we finish the 66 book series. Um, I want to talk about um, miracles, tongues, prophecies. Do they still, um, are they still relevant or are present today? And here Hebrews tells us that the purpose of all those signs and wonders in the New Testament era was to verify and attest to the gospel that was proclaimed by the apostles. But we'll talk about that later. Um, the author almost, uh, the, the author knew Timothy. He mentions Timothy um, in chapter 13, verse 23. So he was certainly among that group, right? Um, the apostolic circle, the original um, circle of people. So maybe this is Apollos or Barnabas. We don't know, um, but that's okay. Um, the, 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 the Hebrews is unlike almost any other letter in the sense that um, it reads very much like a single message, a sermon. So a lot of people call this a sermonic letter. The theme of Hebrews is don't fall away Jesus is better. The word better or variance of the word better is found 25 times in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is warning um, people not to fall away from Christ. The or original recipients were Jewish Christians because um, he talks about Jesus being better than the sacrifices, better than the temple, and so forth. Um, and these Jewish Christians were under intense persecution um, just to give you a flavor of the kind of persecution they were facing, let me read to you Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being pu uh, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those 
so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted a plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So I think that's a pretty amazing um, glimpse into the lives of these early believers. They were under persecution. Uh, the Christian religion was um, illegal. It was outlawed in the Roman Empire. And um, uh, Roman governors, if they could um, arrest or capture um, Christians, certainly Christian leaders, they would uh, sometimes put them to death. But other times, you know, you could do lesser persecutions, like you confiscate all their property or you put them in prison. And I just try to imagine what that must have been like, right? To be a believer and have all of your possessions seized or to be thrown in prison. This is what they were facing. Um, and so the temptation was to go back to Judaism because the Jewish religion was protected legally in the Roman Empire. They also suffered uh, persecution and um, they were thought of as very strange and odd, uh, odd people in the Roman Empire. But they received um, legal protection because it was understood that this was a particular weird religion that the Jewish people had. So the Romans accepted it, right? But Christianity did not receive that same um, protection. And so there was strong temptation for many believers under the, in the face of persecution to fall away. So this leads us to the problem of apostasy. The word apostasy comes from uh, verse 12. Um, where he, the writer says, uh, fall away. Um, it's the Greek word apostasia. And apostasy means to abandon the Christian faith, to depart from Christianity. This is a major, major theme in Hebrews. If I could, again, sum it up, it would be don't fall away. Don't apostatize because Jesus is better. There are five major warning passages in Hebrews. And Hebrews is distinctive. The distinctive thing about Hebrews in all the letters of, of uh, in all the books of the New Testament, is that it focuses on this theme of apostasy um, with such uh, with such uh, intensity. But it is a major theme throughout the New Testament. Um, this possibility or this warning of apostasy is con you see this um, in over a dozen passages in the New Testament. The the most poignant one for me, the most heartbreaking one, is the story of Demas. Um, Demas is mentioned by Paul in Colossians and Philemon as a fellow gospel worker. So I want you to imagine this. Paul, he's a missionary. He's going around. He's planting churches. But he has companions. He has fellow gospel workers. If Paul is the senior pastor, you could think of these guys as associate pastors or assistant pastors, right? And Demas was one of them. He mentions Demas in Colossians and Philemon um, with a lot of warmth, a lot of affection. And then listen to 2 Timothy 4.10. This is, 2 Timothy is, we think, is Paul's last letter. The letter he wrote in prison before he, was, uh, before he died. He writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So here you have somebody who was in the inner circle. He knew Paul. He saw Paul perform miracles, right? Um, he saw churches planted, and then he fell away. Um, and so I think that's very sobering. There's also the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 120. Paul says they shipwrecked their faith. And we also have other examples throughout the New Testament of warnings not to fall away. This is not in the uh, um, handout, but listen, this is the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 10. 
uh, he's talking about um, what will happen um, in the end of, end of the age, end of human history. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, listen, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So this isn't just a possibility, it will happen. There will be believers who fall away. Um, and I think he's not here talking about some intense, like, you know, 10-year or 7-year period. I think he's talking about the whole of, of uh, history since uh, his ascension to, since the, the end of the apostles till now, right? I think we're in this period of tribulation. There's a lot of uh, persecution and suffering of believers much, 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 much less here in the United States. We have incredible privileges. We're, we have incredible protection. We're often misunderstood and mischaracterized, but we don't face anything compared to what believers like in China, for example, suffer. Um, and many will fall away under that persecution. Or listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 4 verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, later times, some, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. People will depart. So this is something that we need to grapple with. And uh, I think for all believers, it's, it's a troubling possibility. It kind of reminds me of um, when Jesus is in the, the, the Last Supper, right? And he says, one of you will fall away. One of you will betray me. One of you will um, sell me out. And uh, all the disciples, they don't all say, it's Judas. <laughs> what do they all say? They say, is it me, right? And I think that's the proper, humble approach, is to have this sobering thought. Could that be me? Could I fall away? Um, and then how do we reconcile that with other passages that speak about our eternal security in Christ? Let me give you two examples. Ephesians 1 verse 4, He chose us in Him, so God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So we were, our salvation, we were chosen by God before He created the world. That's how secure we are. It's not anything that we decide or we, you know, opt in. <laughs> we're, we're holding on by our willpower, but it's God's eternal decree. Or listen to John 10, 28. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, I have all the believers, all my people in my hand. Jesus' hand is so powerful, so strong. No one, no scheme of, of, of hell, of hell or, or Satan, no wandering human heart can, can break the grip of Jesus, right? But then how do we reconcile these warning passages? So we're going to look at, we're going to have an extended look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 14, verse 13. It's a very beautiful, complex, rich passage, and I'm really excited to dive into it. Um, and I chose it because it's characteristic of Hebrews, um, and it interweaves two concepts in a way that, like, it's, it's going back and forth, which I think will be really helpful and interesting, and... Um, and uh, increase um, our understanding of Scripture. And the two concepts is, it's a warning not to fall away, and then this idea of rest. And we'll talk about what this idea of rest is, and so we'll go back and forth. Um, so let's read the passage. This is chapter 3, verse 7 through 11 first. Um, I'll read it sort of like a paragraph by paragraph, and then I'll um, make some comments, and we'll go through the passage in that way. Therefore, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. So he's quoting here Psalm 95, okay? It's an extended re uh, reflection on Psalm 95. 
today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Okay. So Psalm 95 here is evoking the story of Exodus chapter 17. What happened in Exodus 17? Um, it's the story of Mer uh, Meribah and Massa. Um, those are Hebrew words that literally mean, uh, Meribah means quarreling or rebellion, and Massa means testing, because that's what happened. <laughs> so it was named uh, after those, uh, those things. Um, the people of uh, God, uh, the Israelites, they're going through the wilderness, through a dry and thirsty land, and then um, they're thirsty. There's no water. And then rather than trusting in God's good provision, why would God lead us out into the wilderness to die? No, He wouldn't do that. This is, we need to trust Him. They grumble, they complain, they said to themselves, God doesn't love us. Um, he brought us out here to kill us. And then they got to the point where they seized Moses and they were going to kill him. They were going to execute him by stoning him. And so uh, God says to Moses, strike the rock and rock will flow out, uh, water will flow out of the rock. Um, but then also because of that incident, and not only that incident, but you know, that incident was very um, characteristic. God swears on his wrath um, in his judgment he says, this first generation of the Hebrews in the world, this first wilderness generation, they will not enter the promised land. That's his judgment, right? Um, excuse me. All right. Um, it's interesting the way he puts it. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So uh, it's an interesting idea here that he calls the promised land rest. And um, the reason why I want to dwell on this is because it really helps us to understand how to read the Bible. Um, because the psalmist here is a masterful theologian. He's teaching us how to do it. And uh, here I want to give you a very, very brief glimpse and taste into something called biblical theology. This is distinguished from systematic theology. Systematic theology is when um, you take all of the Bible and you look at one subject, right? So you look at, for example, um, the idea of the Trinity. And then you look for all the New Testament passages, and then you look at all the Old Testament passages, and then you pull them all together, and you don't really make a distinction between um, Old and New Testament because it's all speaking the same truth about this one doctrine. But biblical theology is very sensitive to the progression of history and how things unpack and how the story unfolds, right? And so it begins um, in Genesis, one concept. So let me give you an example, like for example, marriage, right? We see marriage in Genesis, and then we see marriage developed in the Old Testament. Oh, God is the, uh, is the husband, 
his people is his bride. And then we see the ultimate fulfillment of that. Jesus Christ is the heavenly bridegroom coming to his church, the bride. So you see this kind of progression, right? A narrative arc. And we see that with um, this idea of rest. So the, the rest here goes back to the beginning, the seventh day, right? And then um, the, psalm, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 95 is connecting it to the promised land. And we're going to develop that, um, but let me proceed forward, okay? So why does he call the land rest? The reason is because um, they would, the people of God would experience rest from their enemies, rest from uh, the journey. This is the way Deuteronomy calls the land. It's a place of rest. But it's not just a metaphor. Again, it's evoking this idea of God resting on the seventh day. We'll go back to it. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll circle back. Because that's the way the, the Hebrew writers does, the, the, the author of Hebrews does it. And um, I would think he's not organized, but then he's an inspired biblical writer, so we need to follow his lead, right? So verse 12, this is not how I would preach, but this is how he preaches. Maybe I should take cues. All right, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Uh, for those of you who don't have a handout, I, I always underestimate. I always, when, I'm, when I'm always pressing the, the print button, I always tell myself, only 20 people will come, surely. Um, so I apologize. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 14, if you guys have smartphones. Um, all right, so this passage here is a very challenging passage because it's telling us that it's possible for Christians to fall away. Notice he says in verse 12, take care brothers. These are brothers, right? These are fellow Christians. These are people inside the church. Um, so how do we understand that, this, pos uh, uh, this possibility of apostasy? And I think verse 14 is the key. Look at verse 14 very carefully. It says, for we share in Christ, if indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The key word there is, if indeed. What does it mean when he says, if indeed? Let's do a little bit of syntactical grammar logic, right? The writer is not saying that true Christians can lose their faith. That's not what he's saying. Because that language of if indeed is saying that um, true faith will always persevere and if someone's faith does not persevere that shows that they did not have true faith. Does that make sense? So when he says brothers take care right that you don't fall away he's using the word brothers then in a quotation mark in terms of those people who belong to Christ. You belong to Christ if, indeed, you continue in holding the faith firm all the way to the end. That's the evidence that you belong to Christ. Um, or another way to do it is listen to uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John says, They went out from us because they did not really belong to us. If they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Does that make sense? So, 
a true Christian cannot authentically, genuinely fall away from Christ because, again, Christ is the one who holds on to them. But a true Christian will always persevere, and if you do not persevere, that shows that you do not truly belong to Him. But this is knowledge that belongs to God. This is knowledge that belongs to Christ. None of us possess this knowledge, even about ourselves. So when Paul says, take care of brothers, he's talking about what we can perceive and what we know. So these are, anyone in this room can fall away. That's what, Paul is, uh, that's what the author is saying. I can fall away, right? Because my faith is, if indeed, if I hold on to the end. It's sort of like refining gold. You know, in the ancient world, when you dig up gold, you don't dig it up uh, in its pure form, but um, you dig it up and it's covered with, uh, modeled with uh, all kinds of impurities. So how can you tell the real gold from the impurities or the, uh, the imitation gold? You plunge it into the furnace. And then under the intense heat of the furnace, what happens? All the impurities burn away. Um, all the impurities, because gold has such a high uh, melting temperature, um, all the impurities, they, they sort of bubble to the top and you can skim it off. So false faith, not genuine faith, will always fall away under adversity. Um, but true faith will persevere and endure through adversity. Think about Jesus' parable of the seeds, right? He says, there are seeds that fall in shallow ground. They spring up, so it seems like they have life. But because they don't have deep roots, the, the sun, the hot Mediterranean sun comes beating down on the plant and it withers and dies under the scorching sun because it doesn't have deep roots. But, the, but the, the, good, the good soil, the good plant will thrive and grow. Or another way to put it is, how do you know something is precious? How do you know that what you have is precious? Well, you, you know it's precious when you're faced with a choice. Will you give it up in, in light of something else, right? Um, in the face of adversity, can you hold on to it, right? Let's say your house is on fire. You have one minute to... I would try to grab all the books I can. <laughs> no, you have one minute. What are you going to save? Yes. <laughs> um, you have one minute. What are you going to save? I imagine all of your parents, you would run into the house and you would grab your children, right? Um, you would grab whatever is the most precious thing to you. So that's what life is. Life is, it's your house is on fire. And only what is the most precious you'll hold on to. And so this is a, a sobering lesson for all of us. There are people in the church, Christians, who have not yet been tested. They are the shallow soil. Their roots don't go down very deep. Um, and this should make us not have a cavalier attitude about our Christian faith. Um, we should want to persevere. We should want to gird ourselves for adversity and, and difficulty um, because true faith will always endure hardship. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Um, I want to pause here for a moment and any questions? Yes, Louise. How can you tell us that you're the real deal? Because you endure. Yeah, but you can go through hardships in life and just push through like white knuckling. You know, how do I know that what I went through, I went through it with Jesus, and it's not something that I went through it by myself? Yeah, so um, it is possible to white, as you said, white knuckle and just by sheer willpower. Um, but then everything, 
the, the reason why you're able to endure is because of the love of Christ. And if what's holding you to Christ is not His love, but it's other things, um, then everything in your life will be mechanical, right? Your devotion to Christ will be effortful and will be um, a lot of willpower and a lot of you know, determination. And there won't be a kind of natural organic growth to it. I think the seed metaphor is really important because you know, how do you add on to a pile of bricks? You just add more and more bricks and it's very hard to grow the pile of bricks. But how does a tree grow? It just grows like it has this internal power. And eventually that oak tree can be big enough to split rocks. And so you have to see in yourself, like what is it that's causing spiritual life? Is it the love of Christ? So I would always say like, don't necessarily like look at externals, but look at Christ. Do you love him? You know, is he, is his majesty and beauty what controls you? Does that answer your question? Yes. As Christians, like, should we feel this anxiety and fearfulness that we can fall away and you know try really hard to make sure that we're in the love of Christ, or should we feel like this like sense of assurance and rest, knowing that He is holding on to us and that we can never fall away? Right, um, right, yeah, because He gives us all kinds of assurances, right? I will hold you in my hand. No one can take you from my hand. I think it's a balance. Um, I think the cavalier attitude is wrong. This is why there's all these warning passages. It's wanting us to have some kind of anxiety, a good anxiety. It's sort of like if you're married to your spouse, do you tell yourself, ah, my wife will never leave me. <laughs> right? I can do whatever I want. <clears throat> no. <clears throat> now, will your wife leave you? No, she promised she would never leave you. But does that make you, but don't you have a, a good anxiousness to want to be a good husband to her and love her and, and show attention to her? And so, um, and so it's sort of like that. It's a, it's a balance. Um, we should be good anxious, but then we don't want to be overly anxious. We don't want to be crippled with anxiety. And I think like if you're crippled with anxiety, you're not looking at Christ. You're looking, it's a kind of inward, like self-absorbed, you know, concern about your salvation. Um, your, your, your foremost thought should be Christ and your security should be a, um, a spillover benefit of looking at Christ because he's so good. He's so strong. Um, he will never let you go rather than, am I safe? Am I safe? I don't know if that makes sense. So I think that leads us to how do we endure? So let me offer three uh, words of counsel here uh, from the passage. Verse 12, the writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart. So when he says, take care, what does that mean? He's saying, pay attention. Right? He says, strive, spend effort. Um, elsewhere, Paul describes a Christian life as a race. Nobody goes up to a race. <laughs> um, I used to run cross-country track, right? And then the starting pistol goes off. <laughs> um, just sort of, you know, casually jog. It's okay. I'll end up in first place somehow. No, you, you strive. You push, you know, because you're, you're going for the goal. Um, so the Christian life requires effort, thoughtfulness, um, energy, intentionality. 
It should be something, your Christian life, your, your, your walk with Jesus should be the forefront thought in your heart and in your mind every week, every day. Truly. Um, verse 13, he says, But exhort one another every day. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that we don't persevere alone, but we persevere in the context of community. We can't hold on to ourselves and keep ourselves alive to Christ. I think there's something really profound about the sociology of faith. Somehow, like when you're with other believers, your faith waxes and wanes. Your faith goes up and down. But then you sort of rest on and depend on the faith of others. And when other people express their devotion to Christ, when other people confess their sins and so forth, it strengthens and lifts you up. I, I would say this, one of the greatest privileges I have as, as, as your pastor is I'm meeting with people all the time and they tell me about their story, their spiritual lives. And I'm so encouraged by that. And I think, you know, we need that. We also need it because sin is deceitful, right? That's the way the writer describes it, which means sin is going to hide. You'll never know sin, what sin is doing in your life because it will disguise itself. Um, there are other passages that talk about sin being a lion crouching at the door. You know, a lion um, stays low, right? The, li the lion doesn't walk tall. Um, and so you need other believers. You can always, you always know the sins of, your, of other people. It's so crystal clear right? You know their fatal flaws, um, but no one sees their own fatal flaws, so you need, you need other believers. And then finally, third word, verse 15, it says, do not harden your hearts. I think it's a really evocative image, this metaphor of hardness. Um, to have a hard heart means that your heart um, can't be penetrated. So the message of Christ, um, His love, His majesty, His holiness, it doesn't cut you. It doesn't go in. It doesn't penetrate. Your heart is hard, uh, is hard. And notice he says, do not harden your hearts. So there's a kind of willful aspect to our apostasy. You refuse to yield. You refuse to repent. There will, there will always be opportunities for you to repent. When somebody points out your faults, it's always painful and it seems awfully unfair. But they're giving you an opportunity to soften your heart, to repent, right? There's always ways that you can repent. Um, any questions there before we go to uh, verses 1 through 7? How are we doing in time? I have a fear that we're not going to get through. Yeah. I always tell myself. <laughs> I was going to do like three or four books. I was like, I'll just keep it down to two, but we'll see. Um, is there any questions? I've, I've given up going to James, so any, any questions? <laughs> All right. Let's go. Let's go to um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So this is a really sophisticated argument. I really want you to track with what the writer is saying because it really teaches us how to read the Bible. So uh, let's read verses 1 through 7. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, right? He's still talking about this rest, right, of the promised land. Let me read it again. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, okay, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. 
for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, Psalm 95, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a very amazing, beautiful argument the writer is making. So as you can see, he's not talking about the land anymore. Do you know why? Because verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now wait a minute, let's think this through. Did the people of God, did the Hebrew people enter the promised land? They most certainly did. So now how could it be that he says it still stands, right? Um, how could it be that it's still awaiting us in a sense? And the answer is that the land represented something else, right? It points back, it's using this metaphoric language of the seventh day, the Sabbath day. But the seventh day, the day that God rested, this holy day, points forward to a greater reality, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore, um, right, and we know that he's, he's pointing back to the seventh day because in verse 3 it says, his works, God's works were finished from the foundation of the earth. And in verse 4 he says, somewhere, I like the way he quotes, somewhere it was spoken of the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. It was Genesis, but, you know, sometimes you don't have time to write your citations correctly. Um, so the word rest, right, uh, the word rest is talking about the promised land, it's talking about the seventh day, and it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And, um, and therefore, that's biblical theology. That's the trajectory. This idea of rest develops, right? It unfolds like a story. A greater and greater reality is presented to us. Let me continue on in verse 8, and I'm going to unpack it a little bit more. For if Joshua had given them rest, right? Remember, Joshua was the one who led his people into the conquest of the promised land. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So what is the argument here? There's another day in the future. There remains a day of rest. And Joshua didn't give the people of God that rest. The promised land was only a kind of symbolic analog uh, uh, analogy of this future reality. And all of us, New Testament believers included, are still striving to enter this land, this rest. None of us have entered it. Only Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection, he has entered it, right? And so therefore, we are in the exact same situation as Israel in the wilderness. And it teaches us how, therefore, to read the Bible. Um, and this is something called typology. Typology is like another way, uh, a more sophisticated way to talk about symbolism in the, in the Old Testament. So we don't read the Old Testament in a flat, um, in a flat way that sees 
Israel as separate from us that sees the drama of what's going on in the wilderness as sort of like an interesting moral lesson. It is our story, right? And so let's think about, let's think through the typology. So here's Egypt. The people leave Egypt, Exodus, into the wilderness. They wander around for 40 years and then they finally enter the promised land. And therefore, don't you understand how the writer of Hebrews is teaching us how to read the Bible? Egypt is what? We were slaves to sin. What is the wilderness, therefore? The Christian life. And what is the promised land? It's heaven, right? It's the new heavens and the new earth. And when you read it like that, the story becomes so much more vivid and applicable, and we're exactly here right now. We're in a dry and thirsty land with scorpions, and we need to learn the lesson of Israel, which is it's not enough to be inside the people of God. It's not enough to witness even the miracles, right? In verse, um, verse 9, uh, in chapter 3, the psalmist says, God says, um, they saw my works for 40 years. I want you to imagine that. Every day, miracle bread <laughs> is on the ground. All the time, you go out to battle, and you're outnumbered, you, you don't have much in the armaments, and you win. <laughs> um, all the time, you see this pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud during the day. You have Moses who is arguably one of the greatest spiritual leaders in human history. So that you have the best preaching, you have the best discipleship, you have the best Bible study lessons, and all of those things are not enough if you do not unite yourself in faith to Christ, to His people. <coughs> and so you must respond with faith. It is, it is a sobering warning. It's not enough to be inside the church. Um, any questions on that before we get to the last passage? How are we doing in time? Uh, let's go to verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive. I think that word strive is very important. Um, you know, imagine just straining, stretching, striving, right? It's not a casual thing. Um, you don't, nobody coasts in the Christian life. You strive. Um, because whatever's the most important thing in your life, that's where you'll put all your energy, right? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience of the Hebrews in the wilderness, right? Who didn't trust God, who didn't believe Him. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So I love that meditation on scripture there at the end. We have to let scripture do its work. The Bible is not a, is not a passive text that we can safely study. Um, oh, is that interesting? Mm, these are interesting doctrines. No, but Scripture has 
an authority over you, a power over you. It probes. It has, um, it has discerning ability. And so you have to submit to Scripture. You have to allow Scripture to do its work. And the, the vivid language of Scripture's work is it's a two-edged sword. Uh, we don't live in the ancient world, so that doesn't really impress us too much. But this is a battle sword. And what do you do with a battle sword? It, you know, it slashes, it cuts, it penetrates. That's what, that's what Scripture is supposed to do to us, to our hearts. Um, so that's it. Um, how about five minutes or so, seven minutes or so to, for questions? Yes, Dorothy. Also, yeah. I mean, relative. Yeah. Of course, you know, life is hard. But um, and then you also said that the testing of your faith through persecution is what kind of proves to yourself and, of course, to God. Well, God doesn't need proof, but you know what I mean. Um, that your faith is real. Um, and so my my question is. Can I, can I modify that a little bit? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think that what you said is I think what I did say, but then just hearing it, I want to add on to it. I do think believers in the United States are persecuted, but it's not the kind of, it's not the kind of persecution that we see in our brothers around the world, right? Yes. But but we are under um, we do experience hostility. I think that's fair to say. Hostility and misunderstanding. So I I want that to be clear. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> And I know in my own life, I tend, and I'm sure many of us, we just tend towards like defaulting towards like the cushier decision, like whatever is going to make me more comfortable mm. um, and be safer for me. Is there any value in not to be like what's the word masochistic or whatever, but like seeking out um, difficult situations, like intentionally putting yourself in difficult situations to strengthen your faith, or is that just kind of stupid because you know, life is hard? And yeah, I I think that's a really good insight. And maybe we could have a conversation about that. I think to what degree is the relative amount of protection that, or safety we experience the result of, of um, the culture being friendly and warm and welcoming to Christians? Or to what degree is it an act of cowardice on our part, um, an inability to make a fuss, right? Um, you know, can we be more outspoken about, you know, right and wrong, justice, um, love for the, uh, the weak and the powerless, but also just to be outspoken about our faith among our friends and among our coworkers, um, not in a rude and obnoxious way, not in a pushy way, but, um, but to let people know I'm a believer and this is, you know, this is what I believe in. And then to experience you know, people's scorn or disdain, like how much of it is, is us you know, wanting to blend in um, the, the term I always use is we're like we're ninja Christians, right? Um, we're cloaked, you know, and so nobody can tell we're Christians because we don't disrupt the system too much, but also we're not very outspoken about our identity, our, our identity in Christ. So how much of our lack of persecution is the result of that? Is that what you were thinking or going towards? Yeah, and kind of just feeling a little... Like, I wish my faith was stronger, but I also don't want the hardship that comes with creating a strong faith. You know what I mean? And just kind of, like, parsing out that. Carly? I'm just thinking about when he was talking about this. There's also 
possible distinction between persecution, right, which is sort of political or something, this big external thing, and hardship, which is a human state, right? All people, Christian or not, experience hardship, even in the cushiest culture. So I was thinking about, is is living in a cushy culture a new kind of hardship? That mm. is kind of a mental trick, right? What is that? What does that mean in the testing of our faith? Like, does your faith hold through hardship? Does your faith hold through the hardship of a good life? You know, I feel like in some ways this is the modern question mm. that a lot of us are struggling with because we're not gonna like sell our house and go on the road and start begging to experience tough times. You know, mm -hmm. this is the life we're in. And, and we can make some choices, I think, to experience, like we're all handed hard times sometimes too. We can say, I'm not gonna go kicking and screaming, I'm gonna walk into this and see where this goes. But I also think one of the hardships we're handed too is a good life. Yeah, I think that point is really well taken, which is um, it, it's not just persecution, right, which is um, like governmental or societal persecution that is hardship and adversity, but it's just the adversity and hardships of life. And actually, I would dispute that with you in terms of the good life of the modern world. We're materially rich, but it doesn't protect us from a lot of things, right. from broken bodies, broken relationships, from uh, emptiness and depression and anxiety, all well, these I mean, things. There's a lot of good, right? <laughs> there's a lot of... I, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. We have big houses, but we have no friends, you know? <laughs> so this is, this, is, this is the plight of modern believers, and so, yeah. And I think, how do we respond to adversity and hardship in this life as believers? That's a test of our faith. Peter, did you have a question or yeah. a comment? I feel like there's so much in the Bible that talks about like how we could know that we're saved like right now, like today, that we could be sure in our salvation. But I feel like there's kind of an implication from the author here that like we could only really know like like on your deathbed, like if you had you know persevered through the race. How do you like reconcile that? Yeah, it's a bit of a paradox, right? I so my answer is I think you simultaneously hold both in your head. Um, I don't think because the basis of our salvation is not endurance. And this is going to get to the James passage. I mean, the James, the book of James, when I get to it. Um, but the basis of our salvation is not our endurance. The endurance is the fruit of our salvation. It's the evidence of our salvation. But we should see evidence, right? It, uh, the, the analogy I would always give is the fruit in the tree. The fruit doesn't give the tree life. It's not the reason why the tree is alive. It's not the source of the tree's life, but it's the evidence of life in the tree. And if, it, if there's a tree with no fruit, then you could just say it's a dead tree. Um, and so there has to be fruit. So there has to be endurance. And you should be attentive and, and alert to producing fruit. There has to be good works in your life and there has to be endurance in your life. And so I don't know if it's a satisfying answer, but it's both. Any other questions? Tony. Uh, my question is more theological in nature. So in You've come to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in John 10, um, 28, you said that no one can be snatched from Jesus' hand. Yeah. But in John 17, 12, and I want to make sure I'm not taking this out of context, Jesus is talking about how he says, when I was with them, and I think it's the, the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, 
I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Mm-hmm. Who is the son of destruction? Is that Judas? So, is was Judas not snatched, or was it just was he just lost to destruction because that's just how the scriptures could be fulfilled? So, how do you reconcile the fact that Jesus did guard his disciples, but maybe it's just the the verbiage? I, I mean, I don't know how what what the correct word here. Yeah, is Judas somebody who was in Jesus' hands, but then because of because he had to fulfill his unique role in the story of Jesus's, you know, salvation, he he had to be the one figure. I don't think that is the case. Um, It 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 doesn't connect with everything else that the Bible talks about. But I'd have to look at that text more closely. But my thought is that. Um, Judas, it's not talking about Judas. Judas was never, Judas was inside, was among the disciples. So Judas is like an example, um, like the Israelites in the wilderness. He was counted. So there's, 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 a, there's a kind of distinction that we can make, which is there's visible Christians and there's invisible Christians, or there's, there's, um, there's the elect, and then there's, there's people who, who have the name Christian. And so that, that, it's like a Venn diagram. It should, it should ideally be like completely overlapping, but it's more like, like a Mastercard thing, you know, um, logo, where there's a lot of overlap, but but there's all kinds of um, anomalous outliers. And so I think Judas is one of those people who um, had the name of Christian. He was a dis- formal disciple of Jesus, yeah. but he ultimately fell away. But there are others who fell away too, like Demas. And so I don't know if that answers your question. That was my best attempt at it. All right. um, Let's, unless there's another pressing question, let me close. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word in Hebrews, for this stern, strong warning. Let it shake us out of our slumber. Um, Let us, let it um, wake us up from, from complacency, from lackadaisical. casualness, but um, instead, let it give us a serious attentiveness to our faith in Christ. Um, Let that be at the forefront of our hearts and our minds to pursue Him, to love Jesus, to follow Him, to submit to His commandments with all of our strength, all of our energy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.